0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app.
1: I am Nikki Blake. I serve as the Dean of the Graduate Division and Vice Provost of Student Academic Affairs here at UCSF, and I have the pleasure of hosting this session with my colleague, Dr. Dave Morgan, who is the Vice Dean in the School of Medicine. So we just want to say thank you, everyone, um, for joining us today um, in this really exciting series that will feature our graduate students and and their colleagues talking about the research and their their research and their experiences within the graduate program here at UCSF. Today I have the honor of introducing um, Jason Davidson. Uh, Jason is a third year PhD student in our pharmaceutical sciences and pharmacogenetics program. He received his uh, Bachelor's of Science in Biochemistry from Hampton University in 2009. After his time at Hampton, he participated in a one-year um, internship program at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston before joining us here in U- at UCSF in 2020. Jason's research in the BATS lab um, focuses on utilizing electronic health records and social determinants of health to develop methods that effectively stratify the differences in disease and drug response outcomes between population groups to, overall, to improve overall health care quality and equity. During his three short years here at UCSF, Jason has been a little busy, He is currently serving as an intern in our Office of Career and Professional Development. He is the president of our Black Excellence in STEM, which is a campus student organization. He is a UCSF Stanford FDA Searcy Diversity Scholar. Um, He serves on the executive board um, of um, Black in Chem, and chairs the Social Media and Graphic Design Committee on that um, organization. And most recently, Jason um, was um, the second place winner in UCSF's Grad Slam competition, which is a competition that students are asked to present their work in three minutes or less to a lay audience. I have to share a quick story. Um, During our grad slam this year, um, there was a fire alarm that went off right in the middle of Jason's um, presentation. This young man handled one of the most disturbing things that could happen when one is given a talk with such poise and such class. He actually finished his entire talk before um, walking out of the um, auditorium with the rest of us uh, in in recognition of the fire drill. So I am thrilled and delighted um, to have Jason lead off the session with you, and I'm going to turn it over to him now.
0: Thank you, Dean Blank, for that wonderful introduction. Hello, everyone. I hope you guys are excited to learn about health equity bit by bit. So let's get into this presentation. Today, I'll be talking about improving health e- equity bit by bit. But before we start, let me ask you this question. With $50, where would you most likely shop for food? Would it be either be Whole Foods or McDonald's? I'm sure with fifty dollars, most people will likely shop at McDonald's to feed their families, despite the unhealthy food. Right? This way of thinking is both is both similar to health equity, healthcare, drug affordability, and other factors that actually goes into causing disparities in health. So, what is health equity? Health equity is a state in which everyone has a fair and just opportunity to attain their highest level of health. Improving health equity is important because as the US is shifting towards value-based care, it is important that everyone reaches their best health no matter what their personal and social circumstances are. And improving health equity is important to address historical and contemporary injustices to overcome economic, social, and other obstacles that affects health and healthcare, and to eliminate preventable health disparities. To achieve health equity, we must change the systems and policies that have resulted in generational injustices that give rise to racial and ethnic health disparities. And most importantly, to achieve this, we must understand the factors that affect health equity and leads to disproportionate rates of chronic illnesses and diseases between different population groups. Today, we'll be talking about health equity specifically focused in diabetes. So what is diabetes? Type 2 diabetes is the result of the pancreas inability to produce enough insulin to regulate glucose homeostasis. And one in three people in the US has diabetes, and the rates of diabetes continue to rise year after year as to the comorbidities that are consequences of type 2 diabetes. By 2040, there's expected to be 642 million patients in the U.S. that will be diagnosed with diabetes. And currently right now in the U.S., there's 26.9 million patients of all ages or 8.2% of the U.S. population. The way to test for type 2 diabetes is through hemoglobin A1C which is a test for for glycated hemoglobin, which measures the amount of glucose that sticks to your red blood cells, showing that a normal normal level of hemoglobin A1c is less than 5.7%, pre-diabetic is 5.7 to 6.4%, and diabetic is greater than or equal to 6.5%. And diabetes can be affected by environment, access to healthy foods, genetic determinants, and much more, but how do we capture that information to help improve health equity? Before we get into this, now I must ask you, think for a moment, who do you see shopping at Whole Foods? You can see in Whole Foods that the socioeconomic and demographic gaps are obvious here, and defining these gaps in healthcare might help reduce inequalities in diabetes care, but how? Now, what if we could identify and target patients in California that need better diabetes care by using social determinants of health. And what are social determinants of health? Social determinants of health are the conditions in the environments in which people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age that affects a wide range of health, functioning, and quality of life outcomes and risks but why social determinants of health? Social determinants of health are important because it involves information related to an individual's health, including healthcare and access and quality, social and community context, and neighborhood and built environment at the population level. And at the individual level, education, access, and quality, behavioral factors, genetic factors, psychosocial factors, and sociodemographic factors. And at the population level, we must ask what social determinants factors are contributing to overall health of a population and individually what social determinants of health factors are contributing to the overall health of a patient. And lately, clinicians have strongly noted that social determinants of health plays a role in clinical outcomes, But there has not been a way to define social determinants of health in clinical research, and because of this, social determinants of health have not been widely adopted in real-world evidence studies yet. Most of this is partly due to the difficulties of measuring the social determinants of health, but luckily we have a way to measure it at the population level by way of census data, which includes information about employment, housing, security, transportation, income, and location that is used to help us gain a better understanding of a patient's social determinants of health. Social determinants of health are extremely important because we notice that they play a role in health risks and outcomes, especially with chronic illnesses and diseases. Because of this, we plan to model our study on type 2 diabetes because disparities in diabetes burdens exist in a large part due to social determinants of health at the individual, subpopulation, and population level. Previous translational research and practice addressing health equity in diabetes have generally focused on changing individual behavior rather than directly targeting social determinants of health to increase health equity. Therefore, the next generation of diabetes translation requires health equity goals, consensus definitions, core measures, multi-sector partners, macro-level interventions, dissemination inflammation science, enhanced training, and expanded funding to help with diabetes prevention and treatment to overall increase health equity across population groups. Now, a key challenge with type 2 diabetes is the first and secondary treatments that are highly variable Due to the America's Diabetes Association clinical guidelines that vary greatly as a result of introducing a patient-centered approach to directly target type 2 diabetes progression in patients. Treatments are selected based on a patient's current state of condition, their um, cost and assets is considered, their weight is considered, and other comorbidities such as heart failure, cardiovascular disease and chronic kidney disease all play a role in what patients are actually being treated uh, during their type two diabetes progression. And this variation in the coexisting conditions considered with a type two diabetes, uh, with the patient's type two diabetes state leads to the uses of different second line agents to treat for patients such as DPP4 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists, SGLT-2 inhibitors, TCDs, and sulfonylureas, along with metformin as the first recommended line agent for patients. Diving deeper into these treatment strategies, because they are so variable, we see differences in treatment strategies, and ultimately, we believe that treatment selection for each patient and their outcomes are impacted by social determinants of health. So the question for our study is, does social determinants of health impact type 2 diabetes treatment selection and outcomes? And how exactly do we capture social determinants of health data? And what databases are we using to answer these questions? So before we get into our study, let's talk first talk about electronic health records which is routine data collected through a patient provider interaction during hospital visits. The electronic health record of a patient can be viewed as a repository of information regarding his or her or their health status in a computer readable form. An encounter with the healthcare system generates various types of patient linked data, such as RxNorm pharmacy data, Um, logical observation identifier name and codes lab data, imaging files from patients, as well as the the diagnosis of patients through the international classification of disease codes or systematized nomenclature of medicine clinical terms for the diagnosis of patients. All of this is then imported into electronic health record database To be used for point of care, lab statistics, and for, in our case, research. Now, electronic health records were initially created for insurance billing purposes, but now they provide a unique opportunity to study the underlying causes and management of outcomes in the context of clinical disease. Electronic health records are important because they open the door for the development of fundamental basic computational science to accelerate the access of healthcare and mitigate mitigate gaps in healthcare treatments through real-world evidence studies, which contains diverse patient populations that are representative of a real patient receiving healthcare, where common demographics such as age, sex, race, ethnicity, uh, are all, all taken to help analyze and inform causes of different treatment strategies, disease risks, quality of life, and outcomes for different patients from different population groups. The data set that we, prim- that we are going to be used for our study is the University of California Health Data Warehouse, which is the structured EHR database that we will be using for our study with over nine million patients. 12 major hospitals, and six academic health centers serving very different parts of California, both geographically and demographically, where de-identification of this data has already been completed to enable clinical research projects and real-world evidence studies. The data is stored in the Observational Medical Outcomes Partnership Vendor-Neutral Open Data Model, which enables a wide range of software tools and computational methods to be used within a community of over 400 researchers across the University of Health out uh, University of California Health Center now previous studies previous real world evidence studies have improved our understanding of the treatment practice of type 2 diabetes But the utilization and health outcomes of these treatments does not represent social determinants of health, which has resulted in a lack of knowledge on which treatments are most effective and most widely distributed across distinct population groups. In this figure, it shows across the different UC health centers, it shows the the type 2 diabetes medication orders for monotherapies, which were metformin, insulin, safonorrhea, meglintonides, DPP-4 inhibitors, diaz SGLT-2 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists, and alpha-glucosidase inhibitors, as well as the dual therapies that are both combined with metformin. Now, this recent study has shown that we have data on the treatment of patients, but we absolutely must take it a step further to determine the social determinants of patients And how does it affect treatment choice and health outcomes? But how do we use this in our study and how do we actually get access to this data? One way to get access to this data is through the United States Census. With the census data, it allows us to access social determinants of health data at the population level to understand what affects uh, patient's health outcomes and qualities of life. As many people may might know is that census data covers dozens of topics across 130 surveys and programs, and it gets in the weeds of more than 2.5 million tables of raw data, maps, profiles, and more that is taken every decade. The information from the census is taken through surveys such as the American community surveys and economic surveys that we all have taken at least once through our time through the census. With census data, we are able to understand the de-identified patient social determinants of health by using their zip code. Now, diving deeper into the census data, the census data has this thing called census track data. Which is information that includes census indicators from the surveys that involves more specified social determinants of health information that provides information about employment, housing, security, transportation, income, and more. Census track information are small geographic entities within counties that are categorized by census block groups, which are these groups here, which are statistical divisions of the census tract, in which there are 2,500 to 8,000 residents in each census block group with with regarding their specified social determinants of health information. This information is then used to develop indices such as area deprivation index, the social vulnerability index, and and distress community index, just to name a few, which is then used to help answer questions in real world evidence studies. So, how are we evaluating social determinants of health? We are doing that by using the Area Deprivation Index, which is a multi dimensional evaluation of a region's socioeconomic conditions that are linked to health outcomes comprised of 17 calculated census track variables categorized by education, housing, poverty, and employment status. ADI is a measure that describes area-level social terms of health characteristics that are then mapped to each de-identified patient based on their zip code. And across the University of California Health Data Warehouse, we see that there's a wide distribution of area-level characteristics that is present at each health center, which are all mapped by deciles, meaning ADI-1, meaning least disadvantage you live in a richer port in a richer neighborhood and adi10 meaning most disadvantage that you live in a poor neighborhood and as you can see there is a wide distribution between the red and the blue showing that we have the perfect data set to understand these differences through this wide variety of data now area Deprivation index is important for this study because it will be used for risk adjustment to improve predictive models at an institutional level, to identify high-risk patients and health disparities, and to design better care pathways that improve health outcomes across the board. So let's get into our study design. To design our study, I then searched through electronic health records to identify the patients needed in our study. So I first started with records from the University of California Health Data Warehouse, and I extracted all patients with a type 2 diabetes treatment order in our database. I then excluded patients with other type 2 diabetes treatments before the index date of their initial type 2 diabetes treatment order across all treatment drugs. drug classes. And then I took their treatment order without any other type 2 diabetes medication and then excluded patients who had previous history of type 1 diabetes or any other secondary diabetes before receiving their type 2 diabetes treatments. That then gave us new type 2 diabetes treatment users and I further excluded patients Who had, who did not have a type 2 diabetes diagnosis before they were given their type 2 diabetes drugs. Then in our study, we were then left with new, new type, new users on each type 2 diabetes treatment with a type 2 diabetes diagnosis on or before they were given their treatment. I further excluded patients who did not have a hemoglobin A1C lab measurement relative to plus seven days before or seven days after they were given um, the index date of the drug. And then we were left with new users with hemoglobin A1C lab measurements and their drug treatments relative to their index date. We further excluded patients who did not have area deprivation index ranking, and we excluded patients who were minors, meaning they were less than 18, which then left us with our new patients with ADI and the age greater than 18 years old. After after the exclusion process uh, for our cohort selection, we were then left with our baseline characteristics. Shown by sex distribution of patients, we show that there is a pretty even distribution of data in regards to sex with 51.5% for male and 48.5% for female. We then noticed that the distribution of our patients by ethnicity, we show that 67% were not Hispanic or Latino, 25% were Hispanic or Latino, and 7.9% were unknown in our data set further looking at the distribution of our patients by race we we noticed that 46.1% of our patients were white 18.2% were identified as other 14.8% identified as asian 9.2% identified as black or african american 7.1% um, were identified as unknown, and 3% were identified as multi-race, 1% were identified as Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander, and less than 1% ident- identified as American Indian or Alaskan Native. And what we notice in our distribution of patients by races, how what, we notice that in our data set, there's a higher rate of white people, which is is similar to that at the background of the population of the state of California. However, minoritized races still outweigh the normalized state percentages in our data set. So, further looking at our baseline characteristics, we notice that there's a broad distribution of our data with respect to ADI, Area Deprivation Index. However, we did notice that patients who were in richer neighborhoods actually had a higher percentage in our data set than there were patients who were in poor neighborhoods. We wonder what may contribute to that. Is it lack of healthcare assets in the more deprived areas? Is it um, lack of healthcare affordability? We also noticed um, that across our um, UC health system, we've seen that there's 36.2% of patients at UCD, 19.2% at UC Irvine, 17.4% at UCLA, 145 at UC Riverside, and 12.4% at UC San Diego, with 0.3% at UCSF. Also in our data set, we noticed that the distribution of patients by the type 2 diabetes, which we expected, was that the majority of our patients are on metformin, which we expected because that is used as the first line agent for patients who are new, new type 2 diabetes treatment users. Followed by Sophaniureas at 24.1%, SGLT2 inhibitors at 17.1%, GLP1s at 3.9%, dpp 4 inhibitors at 2.8%, and so forth. So then we ran a couple machine learning models. And what was interesting to note is that we found patients from poor neighborhoods actually received type 2 diabetes care much at a greater disease severity than patients from rich neighborhoods. And so for our regression model, we performed ordinal logistic regression with area deprivation index as our dependent variable to understand the association of hemoglobin A1C score for patients with different ADI. And so we notice ADIs one and two, starting at a hemoglobin A1C at 5.7%, there's a higher probability of patients to receive their treatment at an earlier disease state than patients from poor neighborhoods. And as hemoglobin A1C increases, meaning the disease severity of type 2 diabetes increases, we notice that the probability of patients from poor neighborhoods had a higher probability to receive their care at a much later disease severity than patients from rich neighborhoods. And this outcome raises the question as to why patients from poor neighborhoods are to receive their treatments at a much more severe hemoglobin A1C than those from rich neighborhoods. And why is that? This is a question that we remain to have unanswered and should all aim to answer to increase health equity in communities that need it the most. So looking back at the clinical guidelines, we must keep in mind that metformin is generally used as the first line of agent, and then a second antihyperglycemic drug is then added to help with treatments, but it is also based on a patient centered approach. The newer, more expensive, and most effective drugs are GOP1s and SGL2s. While the cheaper, cost-effective drugs are uh, the cheaper, less effective, um, and cost-effective drugs are sulfonamorias and TCDs. So then, looking deeper into our regression model, we wanted to understand the association of ADI, area deprivation index, on treatment selection. So we when we when we did that we actually found that there are differences in the probabilities of each treatment selection as hemoglobin a1c increases. And so this figure shows the difference in the probabilities and that ADI as a result of hemoglobin a1c at treatment initiation we notice that the the probability of drug use decreases for metformin uh, and GLP-1 as disease severity, hemoglobin A1C, increases. Whereas the probability of a drug usage for ureas and SGLT2s actually increases as disease severity increases, increases. And But more specifically, what you notice is the differences in the probabilities of patients receiving these drugs based on whether they're in a rich or a poor neighborhood. And with our regression results, we we noticed actually that patients from poor neighborhoods had a higher probability of being prescribed DPP-4s versus patients from rich neighborhoods, which are known to be um, differences in this treatment use. We also noticed that as As the stepwise for hemoglobin A1C actually increases, we notice that there's a a flip between safonurias and SGLT2s. Although both of these usages increase as disease severity increases, you notice that as the uses increase, patients from poor neighborhoods are actually receiving safonurias at a higher probability than patients from rich neighborhoods. Whereas with SGLT2s, we notice that patients from rich neighborhoods are actually receiving SGLT2s with a higher probability than patients from poor neighborhoods. Now, looking at looking at this graph, we show that ADI is shown to be a strong predictor of treatment selection of treatment selection. And we must further look deeper into our study and ask: why is there such a disparity? between the rich neighborhoods and the poor neighborhoods? And how do we fix it? Is it because of insurance or lack of insurance of patients? Is it lack of access to healthcare facilities? Is it socioeconomic status? There's so many questions to ask to understand this multi-faceted question. And it's a question that um, I'm exploring deeper by diving deeper into diabetes treatments, outcomes, and other conditions that impacts a patient's health. So in conclusion, so far in our study, we found that their rich and poor neighborhoods receive care at different disease states. We found that social determinants of health are important to understanding differences in care between population groups. We also show that we cannot ignore social determinants data if we want to improve health equity and attain equitable health care, and social determinants of health is the future to advance clinical decision support tools for clinicians, and ultimately I envision a day where we all can use this data to improve health outcomes nationally. And so I would like to acknowledge my lab Um, I would like to acknowledge uh, my mentor, Dr. Toole Butte, and Rohit uh, Vashid, and I would like to thank all the other members in my lab, as well as thank the UCSF PSPG program and the UCSF Stanford FDA SEARC program. Thank you, and if you would like to um, contact me, you can scan this QR code, and it has all my information on there. As well as a, f- a couple publications that I do have as well, or you can follow me on Twitter and email me at j at ucsf. edu. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Jason. Um, great talk. Um, I don't have any questions in the chat yet, so I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you a few questions if that's okay. Is that all right? Yes, that's okay. So, so um, the the most intriguing thing for me was that. Um, your data set only includes 0.3 percent of um, subjects from UCSF. So after all your exclusions, UCSF the representation of UCSF was so can you explain why you think that might be?
0: Yes yeah, so i th- I think a lot of it has to do with the demographics of who are who's actually being treated at UCSF so ucsf is not a primary um a primary healthcare facility most people come to ucsf for secondary care or specialized care um and that can result in the lack of the diabetes patients for new users at ucsf
1: and and i'll, fo- I'll follow up that question um, in your initial um outlining of the the problem of diabetes um you indicated that about a third of all Americans are um have diabetes. What's the global number for diabetes is is this like a uniquely American issue
0: <laughs> um it's not a uniquely American issue um it's just American. In, in the U.S., we have a lot of diabetes patients. Um, and going back to the number, I think it was projected to be 642 million by 2040, um, if I remember correctly, which is, show, which is showing that diabetes is a problem now, and it's going to be an even bigger problem if we do not try to prevent it now before it gets too late.
1: So, so as I as I look at your data, um, Jason, I, I you're 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 really processing a lot of data. In in the era of um, artificial intelligence, how how do you think um, AI will help you in learning the answers to your intriguing questions that you're doing in your research um, over time? I think it's
0: I think the way to answer that question is not more so how AI can help me, but more so how AI AI can help clinicians make better decisions on how they treat patients, ultimately affecting their health outcomes. So one of the one of the biggest things now is Chat GPT, large la- or large language models, um, which. Are now being studied across institutions at the across at institutions across the U.S. where they have um, permission to do so. Which you can these studies, you can take these this data and you can take clinical notes that are of course de-identified. And with this de-identified uh, data, which I've said a number of times today, it means that no one knows who the patient is, no one knows where the patient lives no one knows um how no one knows their name anything where they work nothing like that each patient is giving a code like a patient id which is randomized and actually changes every every day or so um in the system so that they can protect each patient under hipaa and so with this data and these clinical notes it shows exactly how each patient is treated. For example, type 2 diabetes. A patient comes in with, um, with they're having um, issue, they're having a few type 2 diabetes sy- symptoms, they come in, the doctor gives them a lab measurement to go get a hemoglobin global A1C test. That is then taken in the clinical notes. What also is taken is what they ate that day, um, how old they are, their body weight, their BMI, all of that stuff is also taken in the clinical notes. And then what's also taken is the treatments that they're given. So one way in using large language models is you can take a clinical note and kind of take the specific words from that note and then ask the large language model, how can we treat that patient? And so I see the future of that being used as these large language models get better and better I can see that being used as a cons- as a way of some sort of consultancy for for providers to help make better decisions in regards to type 2 diabetes or any other disease to help increase improve health outcomes.
1: That makes sense. Um what other diseases are you or your lab looking at in terms of these health outcomes? Are there other things or is your focus only on diabetes?
0: So my focus is particularly on diabetes and a couple other people um, in the lab work on diabetes, but there's also people working on um, cancer as well. There's some people working um, in immunology. Um, and so in our lab, there's everyone has their own project actually and everyone's doing a lot of cool things that are completely different um, from each other. Um, so in our lab, I'm the only person on this project. And of course, I have a mentor that helps me. Um, but social determinants of health, that is my thing um, in the lab and using that to answer different questions.
1: So so you've teed up your my next question really well. What led your interest? What led you to this interest?
0: Actually, I took a leap of faith. Um, I remember I first came to UCSF. And I wanted to do drug discover drug discovery. Um, I joined the chemical and the chemistry and chemical biology program with hopes of doing so. And then, of course, COVID hit. And because of COVID, I had to learn how to code because my first couple rotations were completely remote. And once I learned how to code and learned the power of computational methods within drug discovery, I then started to look at. What other ways could I use computation? And I actually ran into a tools TED talk, which he, when he talked about precision medicine um, and talked about the power of big data in healthcare. And when I found out that he was actually at UCSF, I sent him a cold turkey email and was like, hey, my name is Jason. I saw your TED talk. I'm interested in your research can we talk? And then I did a rotation, and I just completely fell in love with it. But most importantly, what I fell in love with was the impact and the future implications of this work and working with big data and health and electronic health records, because I felt that there was a need to answer these questions um, that specifically affects people in my community. Through social determinants of health.
1: What types of inequities other than socioeconomic inequities have you have you or do you wish to look at? Is it hard to measure other types?
0: Um yes. Yeah, so one thing that is hard to measure is mental mental health. Um that's one um measure that is hard to measure because we don't have that data at the population level. And so, when I say the population level, I'm meaning that we, we're we talking about data within a zip code, um, which is a census block group within a zip code. And so, when we're looking more at mental health data, we're more, t- more so talking about individual data, meaning individual to that patient. And that data is a lot harder to answer these questions with because it's so sparse. Um, And individual data with regards to social determinants of health is not widely adopted into health records yet just because of the difficulty of measuring that. Um, And so I hope to use that in my work because I do think that that can be an important factor that can lead to health different differences in health outcomes.
1: All right, great follow-up. question. Thank you, Jason. A great follow-up question to that is, um, I get the general sense that research continues to offer more clear and more compelling proof of socioeconomic differences in our society, as mentioned above. Meanwhile, more and more data doesn't seem to lead to substantive change. Can you imagine the legal system being utilized to, for example, make healthier food choices available to neglected neighborhoods?
0: I do imagine that it takes the right people to want to answer that question, right? So we have... So my part is the research. I'm doing the research. I'm providing the change on the research side to help implement these policies. But we also need people who actually implement these policies and have the money, meaning lawmakers and politicians, to help implement these policies that drive that change with the research that is being done at hand. So. I guess my my answer is in order to do that is we need the, the we need politicians who also are willing to um create that change that we see fit through our research.
1: Why, why don't you why don't you tell us a little bit about why you came to UCSF?
0: I like to say that it was divine for me to come to UCSF. Um, so in college, I played football. I played Division One football at Hampton University. Um, I was captain of the team, um, and all of that good stuff. And when it was time for me to graduate, I, um, I wanted to do research, and I wasn't sure where to go. And so, Baylor College of Medicine gave me a, gave me a, uh, gave me a job at their NIH prep program, which is a post-bac program for uh, underrepresented minorities in science. And so when I uh, started to a- apply for schools, there was this, this man at UCSF by the name of, excuse me, by the name of Dr. Peter Hotez, um which my mentor from Hampton put me in contact with. And I met with him every Tuesday for like three months. Um, and he was just helping me figure out what schools to apply to, which schools were good, which schools weren't good. Um, of course it was a little biased there. Um, <laughs> uh, because he because you know he had connections at schools. Um, but he sat there and he really helped me figure out which schools to apply to based on funding, based on their programs, based on their PIs, based on the um, support and all of that. And ultimately he opened my eyes to UCSF because I initially was applying only to East Coast schools because I wanted to stay um, close to the East Coast where my family is from. And I got accepted at UCSF, which was actually the only school I got accepted to actually. Um, And that was all she wrote after. (laughs)
1: Oh, I'm, I'm I'm glad we were smart enough to recruit you. That was a good that was a good decision.
0: <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us
1: online at UCTV.tv